Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And I think we're in the penultimate Space Station episode, folks. So for those of you just, you know, tuning into this episode and not hearing the others, this is a continuation of a series I've done about space stations. So we started off talking about monolithic stations, that is, stations that would launch into orbit all in one piece, like fully formed, and you would use some sort of heavy lift launch vehicle to get them up, up, you know, into orbit. That includes stuff like the Soviet Salyut stations, which also included a couple of military platforms, and uh, also the U.S. Skylab station. Then, in the following episode, we focused a lot on Mir, the Soviet-slash-Russian modular space station, because that particular space station was up in orbit and uh, survived the transition from the Soviet Union dissolving and becoming its various, you know, independent states. And then we followed that up with an episode about NASA's attempts to get its own modular space station up in orbit. Uh, That last one was a real 
gut punch because it involves a series of different proposals and attempts that, you know, fizzled out, uh, at least as far as NASA's original plans go. But this all sets the stage for the International Space Station, or the ISS, which is what I had intended to podcast about in the first place, because depending upon whom you believe, that station is starting to near the end of its functional life. All right, so let's do a quick look at what was going on as we arrived at a point where the ISS becomes possible. First, you had Russia. Back in the Soviet days, the Soviet space agency built several space modules that could serve as the core of a space station. Uh, Mir's core module is an example of this. Another example was the functional cargo block, or FGB. Now, this type of module was originally intended for the Mir space station, but it never launched to join Mir. It was also part of a Soviet-era anti-ballistic missile system, kind of like the Star Wars program was supposed to be here in the United States. Uh, And similarly, that also never achieved orbit. Now, some in the West suspected that the FGB module that would eventually become the first ISS component in space, which would be called Zarya, that, uh, that means dawn or sunrise in Russian. Anyway, they thought that it's possible that this FGB unit actually dated to the Soviet era, or at least was largely constructed in the 1980s. However, other documents show that while the design came from the Soviet era, the actual construction would take place in the 90s. Uh, More on that in just a bit. But the Russians also had another module with the designation of Salyut DOS-8, D-O-S-8. And you might remember from the previous episodes that the Salyut program included space stations that had the DOS designation, and that Mir's core module had the designation DOS-7. Well, the DOS-8 was intended to serve as a core for successor space station, the Mir-2. There was supposed to be a second Mir. The Soviets built DOS-8 in the 1980s, but for various reasons, that program never got off the ground, so to speak. And the module sat in storage in the factory for many years. And it would eventually emerge as Zvezda, which means star in Russian, or possibly Zvezda, since the, the V and W sounds are a little tricky. I'll say Zvezda, but because I, I mean, I tried to look it up, but honestly, the the uh, resources I looked at, I'm, I don't fully trust them because a lot of them just had that robot telling me it's Zvezda. It sounds to me like it's just doing it, you know, phonetically. Anyway. Over in the United States and Europe and Japan, you had various space programs all at work on the design and development of modules for what was going to be Space Station Freedom and then Space Station Alpha or Space Station Fred, as some would call it. And these included a module from the European Space Agency that would be called Columbus and one from Japan called the Japanese Experiment Module or JEM or Kibo. But by the early 1990s, all of those plans were starting to fizzle out as the United States Congress began to balk at the prospect of paying out for a space station that had made little progress since the Reagan administration had announced it in 1984. That also put international strain on NASA because it had made commitments to these other space agencies. So the collapse of the Soviet Union did a serious number, both on its own space program as well as the United States space program. So for decades, the rivalry between the United States and the USSR 
pushed governments to pour more resources into the space program for numerous reasons. One was to display technological superiority over an opponent in the Cold War. Another was to establish technologies that could potentially be weaponized in the future in a further escalation of the arms race. And of course, there were the countless engineers and scientists who genuinely wanted to expand our understanding of space and science. But without that political rivalry, a lot of the oomph was gone, at least on a political side. And, you know, don't get me started on that. I find that so frustrating, as if, you know, pushing back the boundaries of ignorance is somehow not priceless all by itself. You never know what you're going to learn or how you might be able to use it. And it could be an enormous benefit. But no, you know, unless there's that other guy to race against, it doesn't matter. Ugh. Anyway, by 1993, there was a real possibility that any space station plans from anyone were just going to get tossed aside, at least put on a back burner for a really long time. Russia was struggling with a financial and political crisis. The United States was struggling with the fact that the space station designs had moving goalposts and budgetary issues. So every time NASA was trying to readjust, new criticisms were coming in and various politicians were starting to pull money away from NASA budgets. Also by that point, Bill Clinton had become the president of the United States. So with a change in presidential administration comes another opportunity to salvage the work on developing a space station. This time, Russia would be invited to join that project rather than serve as some sort of antagonist. Clinton's team saw the possibility to combine the efforts of Russia with those of the United States, Canada, Europe, and Japan to create an international space station. The big benefit here would be that the pieces that were already either fully built or in the process of being constructed or at least ready to go into manufacturing could still be put to use rather than just go to waste. To that end, U.S. Vice President Al Gore and the Russian Prime Minister, whose name I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce, first name Victor, I can get that one. Anyway, they together announced the planned partnership of the ISS what would become the ISS. And the agreement would also create bonds of international cooperation, which in turn could mean a shift in the arms race, as well as a way to help Russia stabilize uh, politically as well as economically in the wake of the Soviet Union's collapse. That's a good thing. You don't want unstable countries, uh, especially unstable countries that might have access to enormous stores of weaponry. So the various countries all begin to form an Intergovernmental Agreement, or IGA. This would create the three phases of the space station project. Uh, And actually, this was the second IGA. The first one actually took place in 1988, but that one was without Russia's involvement. That was back when it was still going to be, you know, space station freedom. The second agreement would come out like a decade later, in 98. All countries except the United States in this agreement designated the IGA as a treaty in 1998. In the U.S., it was not a treaty, it was an executive agreement. Now, that's an important distinction because in the United States, a treaty with any foreign government requires that the United States Senate has to ratify that treaty by a two-thirds majority vote. Executive agreements do not require that kind of ratification. And in fact, they can pretty much hold the same sort of powers as a treaty can. Now, this is interesting because there's no express clause in the United States Constitution that actually grants U.S. presidents this particular power. 
However, there's also nothing in there saying that they can't do that. So Clinton signed the executive agreement, bypassing a congressional battle over the whole matter. And as NASA puts it, the new IGA established the overall cooperative framework for the design, development, operation, and utilization of the ISS and addressed several legal topics, including civil and criminal jurisdiction, intellectual property, and the operational responsibilities of the participating partners. Lower-level bilateral Memoranda of Understanding, or MOUs, were signed that same day by NASA Administrator Daniel Golden with his Russian, European, and Canadian counterparts, and on February 24th with Japanese representatives. The MOUs describe the roles and responsibilities of the partners in more detail. A third layer consists of bartered contractual agreements establishing the trading of the partners' rights and duties." End quote. Uh, really interesting that bartering was part of this because I'm going to cover a lot of the various components of the International Space Station in this episode. And many of those were part of this bartering where, you know, one party was saying, all right, well, I'll let you do this, but you need to let me do this. And that all kind of came about as international cooperation. So all of this was going on. While, of course, Mir was still operational and in orbit. And as I mentioned in the Mir episode, U.S. astronauts would actually visit the Mir space station as part of preparations for creating the International Space Station. They were gathering valuable information about life in space, the effects of space on the human body, and more. These findings would inform design decisions for the future space station modules. In fact, I should add that Mir stayed in orbit until the spring of 2001, so there was operational overlap between Mir and the International Space Station. So the Mir program continued while NASA, the ESA, Japan, Canada, and Russia worked on components for the new International Space Station. In 1998, things really got off the ground, figuratively and literally, and not only is that when the participating countries signed that uh, IGA and the MOUs, it's also when the first component of the International Space Station launched into orbit. So 10 months after that historic signing, Russia sent the Zarya module up into orbit aboard a launch vehicle called the Proton-K, essentially a big old rocket. All right, so let's address some stuff here. Now, I mentioned earlier that Zarya's design, at the very least, traces its origin to the Soviet era. Now, the purpose of the Zarya module was to act as a, a station-keeping component. That is, it is a part of the station that can work to maintain a fixed distance from other stuff in orbit to allow for things like docking maneuvers and all that kind of stuff. It's important for the stabilization of the station. It would also serve as a source of battery power for the station, uh, including you know having, having solar arrays that could help charge the batteries, or really not help charge the batteries, charge the batteries, and uh, it was based off the FGB cargo spacecraft design. Now, the thing is, a module that was meant to do the very same thing as Zarya was originally part of this Soviet anti-ballistic program called Skilf, uh, which was an abandoned project. They, they tried to launch a laser-based anti-ballistic weapon up into space, the Russians did, but that launch failed. Uh, so there were some folks who suspected that Zarya was not made in the 90s, but was actually a leftover, perhaps even a spare FGB that was originally meant for this weapons program back in the 80s. Now, if that was the case, then the United States was essentially helping fund something that was already 
built, right? Because the United States paid the bill for Russia to make this thing. It could be that they already had it made and they were just like, yeah, no, things are going great. Keep sending the money, you know, checks in the mail. Uh, it would largely explain how this spacecraft managed to come in under budget and on time. Those are two things that are pretty darn rare when it happens in the space industry. Now, does that mean for sure that it was actually built in the 80s, but passed off as being built in the 90s? No, no, not at all. Just that it's possible. But whether it was constructed in the 1980s or the 90s, Zarya did launch into space on November 20th, 1998. It launched from Kazakhstan and it got into orbit without any major problems. Now, the intent was to have Zarya operate on its own with no crew aboard for up to eight months. And it would turn out that the module would be lonely a bit longer than that. Now, broadly speaking, you can think of the ISS as being made of two major sections. There's the Russian Orbital Segment, or ROS, and there is the U.S. Orbital Segment, or USOS. Zarya is the module that connects the ROS to the USOS, or the, at least on the Russian side. So Zarya is 12.56 meters, that's a bit more than 41 feet long, and it's 4.11 meters, or about 13 and a half feet wide at its widest point. It is sort of a uh, you know, it's a cylinder, but a stepped cylinder. So it's not all the same diameter across the entire length of the spacecraft. Uh, like I said, it also has a pair of solar arrays that stretched out to either side, kind of like wings to help, you know, to, to generate electricity. Zarya has three docking ports, uh, one on each end of the module. So like if you look at a cylinder, one on one end of the cylinder, one on the other. And there's a third one that faces Earth typically, uh, on the outer circumference near the forward end of the module. They call this the nadir. So you have the nadir ports. Those are ones that typically face toward Earth in the ISS normal orientation. And then you have the zenith ports, which face away from Earth in ISS's normal orientation. Then you also have port and starboard uh, ports in some of these, starboard being the right-hand side. Assuming you're facing forward and you're upright, you normally don't have to say that because you're normally talking about starboard and port on a boat and you're almost always upright on a boat unless you're really sick. And then port, of course, is the left side. So anyway, those are the various directions we try to keep them straight. It's hard to do when you're talking about being in a microgravity environment where up and down are you know, more concepts than anything else. Anyway, so three ports, one on either end of this module, one on the nadir or earth facing side of Zarya. And uh, Zarya links to the Zvezda module on the aft end, and it connects to a U.S. module we're going to talk about in a second on the forward end, and it, it connects to a, a third module called Rosvet on the Earth-facing uh, port, although originally that port was actually used for Soyuz space capsules to dock with the station. As I mentioned, this module alone was not enough to support life aboard the station, so there was no crew at this point. The second component to join the ISS was the US built Unity module. This is a connector piece, kind of. Its main purpose is to connect the ROS section of the space station with the USOS section. So this is the United States version of that. It also serves as a crew dining area, and it launched on December 4th, 1998 as part of a space shuttle Endeavour mission. So this module was in the payload of that space shuttle. We'll talk more about Unity, as well as lots of other modules on the ISS, 
after we come back from this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. All right, we're back to Unity. Let's learn some more about this particular little module, which again was sort of a connector piece. One of three nodes, as it would turn out. So there are two other uh, units aboard the ISS or part of the ISS that are similar to Unity. So Unity measures 5.47 meters or nearly 18 feet long and 4.57 meters or 15 feet in diameter. So it looks like a very short cylinder, when you're at a distance, right? Uh, It has six ports on it. It has one on either end. So these are the axial berths. That's a B-E-R-T-H-S, not not birth as in like birthday, but birth as in, you know, ship birth. And it also has four along the, uh, the circumference of the spacecraft, if you like. These would be the Zenith Nadir um, and port and starboard uh, ports or berths. 
So on the forward and aft berths, which are called uh, the common berthing mechanisms, again, B-E-R-T-H, these are CBMs. These, uh, at these ends, they had two pressurized mating adapters, one on either side. These are called PMAs. And as the name suggests, PMAs serve as a way to connect two components together and maintain a pressurized environment so that different pieces could link together. The PMA on the aft side of Unity could dock with the Zarya module, and the PMA on the forward side would later serve as a docking point for space shuttles, though in subsequent missions, crews would disconnect this PMA and attach it to other berths while connecting new components to the ISS. So it was not permanently affixed to the forward side. It was, however, and is permanently affixed to the aft side where it connects to the Russian part of the space station. Astronauts aboard Endeavour used the shuttle's robotic arm to connect Unity to Zarya, locking the two pieces together and creating the first linked modules for the ISS. It still wasn't ready to support a crew yet, but it was the first step toward the dream of an international space station, you know, in space. Now, I mentioned that Unity, the connector module, uh, it, you know, serves as a place where crews eat meals together, and it also acts as a pass-through for the various electrical and fluid systems on board the ISS, meaning it allows for those things to continue through this module and connect to others. Very important, like all these modules need to not just fit together, but they need to allow the various systems, especially life support, to go from one unit to another so that you have it throughout the entire space station. Well, Unity was responsible for one of these things, even though it wasn't itself, uh, you know, a life support system module. Now, the plan was to add other components in pretty short order and get the station to a point where it could be habitable for crews. Like the idea was, all right, we'll get the third module up there with life support and then we'll have a crew aboard and we'll be ready to go by the end of 98. But the next module to go up would be a Russian one and the Russian space program Roscosmos was really struggling. Uh, the United States, as I said, actually owned Zarya, having paid for its construction. Again, assuming it wasn't already constructed. Uh, Zvezda would need some extra help in order to get off the ground, both figuratively and literally. And it got some help from, and I, I promise I'm not making this up, Pizza Hut. So, Russia as a whole was still really unstable economically around this time. And the space agency, while never lacking in scientific expertise and ingenuity, often found itself strapped for cash, which makes it really hard if you want to launch something into space. So part of the funding for this project actually came from advertising. Pizza Hut spent a truckload of money to have its company logo painted on the Proton launch vehicle that would carry Svezda up to orbit. The New York Times reported that the pizza company spent about half of what it would take to run a 30-second ad during the Super Bowl at that time, and that was around $2.5 million. So more than a million dollars, maybe a little less than a million and a half. And hey, you know, this might sound a little crass about, you know, slapping a logo on a space rocket, but the money helped keep the dream of the ISS alive. Zvezda would be the first module to actually have a life support system incorporated into it. So it would finally allow people to go aboard the young ISS once everything was connected and operational. Zvezda launched on July 12th, 2000. 
The initial docking with the aft port of Zarya happened on July 26th, 2000. However, it would take a space shuttle mission that was launched a few months later in September for astronaut uh, and a cosmonaut, an astronaut and cosmonaut each, to go on a spacewalk and make all the cable connections between Zvezda and Zarya. Uh, that spacewalk lasted more than six hours to get all those connections complete. And at the end of it, Zvezda, Zarya, and by extension, Unity were all connected together. On September 12, 2000, with all the systems operational, members of the space shuttle crew boarded the space station for the first time. Now, as part of that transfer, Zarya's computers handed over control of the station to Zvezda. So Zarya now was no longer mission control for the Russian part of the space station. And Zvezda would serve as the living quarters for astronauts in the time for the time being. It also had propulsion systems for making attitude and orientation adjustments to the station, very important. And it also had a communication system for making contact with Earth. Finally, after components had been in orbit for about two years, the space station would have occupants. And it would maintain some crew, sometimes a very small one, but it would always have a crew all the way up to and including today. So since September 2012, there has always been at least a crew aboard the ISS. So Zvezda would be home to early crews at the ISS. You might wonder what it was like. Well, the module was 13.1 meters long. That's about 43 meters in, or feet in length, rather. And its widest point uh, in its diameter is 4.35 meters. That's a bit more than 14 feet. And it has four docking ports. Uh, three of those are part of a section called a transfer compartment, which it's at one end of this. So imagine like a cylinder. It has almost like a ball at one end. That's the the where the transfer compartment is. And that's where you could find three of those ports. Uh, and it's at the forward end, like I said, of the, the module. You have one port in the axial direction. So that means coming out from the end. And the other two ports are on either side of the sphere at uh, 90 degrees from the axial port. So you can think of them as zenith and nadir or up and down. You could also think of them as left and right, depending on how you're looking at the station. So the axial port docked with Zarya. So these modules connected end to end. You could think of them as like two cylinders connected uh, end to end with one another. The other two ports on the transfer compartment attached ultimately would attach to the Poisk module on one side and originally a module called Piers on the other. But Piers would later get swapped out for a new module called Naka, which we'll have a lot more to say about later on. A fourth docking port was on the aft end of the Zvezda module, so on the opposite side of the cylinder. This would serve as a docking port for Soyuz spacecraft and cargo ships coming up from Russia to resupply the station. The Zvezda supports up to six crew members. Uh, it actually has sleeping quarters for two, so folks have to kind of sleep in shifts. Uh, it also has other necessities like a toilet. Obviously really important. Astronauts who flew aboard the Apollo missions could tell you all about that. And it also had exercise equipment in order to help crew members stay healthy in space and counteract things like muscle and bone loss. It also has a kitchen area for food preparation. Uh, there are 14 windows in Zvezda, um, including one in each of the sleeping compartments. And one of the carryovers from the Soviet era of Russia's space program would end up being a real sore spot for Zvezda, also for Zarya. So NASA's approach 
to space modules was to include components that could be swapped out so that should something fail, you could bring up a replacement on a subsequent mission, remove the failed piece of equipment and install the new one. And now you've got operational uh, abilities back again. Russia built everything directly into their spacecraft. Like it was not something that was removable. So if anything failed, then the only approach you had was to repair the thing that failed. Otherwise, it was just useless because there was no way to replace it. You couldn't take it out and put a new whatever it was in, like a new computer system, for example. You either fixed what you had or you had a broken one and that was it. So that included... Zvezda's uh, oxygen generation system. The device used is called an electron. That's E-L-E-K-T-R-O-N. And it uses, surprise, surprise, electricity to generate oxygen from water. This process is called electrolysis. I've talked about it a few times on this show. It's pretty darn simple in concept. Uh, you you apply an electric charge to water molecules and that, that electricity, that, that energy breaks the molecular bond between oxygen and hydrogen and both of them get released as gases. Now, you could theoretically use that hydrogen as fuel, but it's pretty dangerous stuff. It's incredibly flammable. And so the electron system would simply vent hydrogen into space. But the oxygen would be used as part of the life support system. But the trouble is, the electron system on Zvezda is pretty darn rickety. I mean, it was originally developed for the Mir space station. And frequently, it requires repairs because it has a tendency to break down. And the cosmonauts can't get a new electron into the Zvezda uh, module because, and here's a classic problem, the electron system is larger than the Zvezda module's hatches. So in other words, you couldn't get a replacement system in there because it won't fit through the door. Whoopsie. But anyway, back in 2000, all of this was brand new. It hadn't started breaking down yet. And on September 12th, 2000, there would be uh, a crew aboard the space station, and there has been every day since. Next, the U.S. attached a truss segment called the Z-1 to Unity, and also added a third pressurized mating adapter, the other two being mounted to either axial end of Unity. And the truss of the space station, you can think of it like a scaffold, uh, it's, it's a, it's a skeleton in a way upon which you can suspend numerous components. And there are a ton of them. Uh, this truss extends outward from the space station and it can hold stuff like the massive solar arrays. When you look at a picture of the space station and you see those big wings of solar arrays, those connect back to the truss of the space station. Uh, but a lot of other stuff connects to it too. The Z1 was the first of these truss pieces, and NASA would add to this many, many times over the following years. However, I'm just going to let you know, I'm going to skip all of those different truss additions because there's a ton of them. They're important, but if I focused on all those, I would never get to the modules. So the next module to join the party was from the United States, and this was the Destiny module. It launched on February 7th, 2001, aboard the space shuttle Atlantis, docking with the other end of the Unity capsule on February 10th. And before that could even happen, the Atlantis crew used the space shuttle's robotic arm to detach the PMA-2 from Unity's forward docking port. Uh, so this was the one that was opposite the one that connects Unity to the Russian module Zarya. The PMA-2 got shuffled around a bit until Destiny had been docked into place uh, in the forward side of Unity. 
And then the Atlantis crew reattached PMA-2 to the other end of Destiny. It would take several days for astronauts to uh, make all the connections necessary in order to bring Destiny fully online. Now, this module is 8.4 meters or 28 feet long, and it has a diameter of 4.2 meters or 14 feet. And it kind of looks like a can of soda to me, but obviously with docking ports on either axial end. Uh, Those are the only two docking ports on Destiny. It does not have any of the ones at the Zenith Nadir or Starboard or port sides. So it just has one on either end of the cylinder. Destiny serves as the first and primary research lab aboard the ISS, at least on the USOS side. This is where the science gets done, but, you know, not to make a neat gun for the people who are still alive. We're talking about biomedical experiments, engineering experiments, physics experiments, earth science experiments, material science experiments, all that kind of stuff. When you think of the science that's happening aboard the International Space Station, Destiny is the primary spot where that stuff happens. Not the only one, but the main one. So this is the kind of stuff that astronauts aboard the Skylab space station focused on back in the 1970s. Destiny was the first module to make use of racks to hold various station systems and experiments in place. So these are kind of like mounting points for various experiments. Obviously, when you're in a microgravity environment, you got to have ways to attach stuff to your your spacecraft or else it's just going to, you know, float around and bump around in microgravity. So these are standardized racks. And in fact, they're called International Standard Payload Racks or ISPRs. And other countries, with the exception of Russia, use the same standard so that experiments and systems can fit on any of these. The Destiny has eight rack bays, and they can hold up to 24 racks. These things, by the way, are massive. On Earth, they'd weigh around 540 kilograms or 1,200 pounds. Of course, in microgravity, you don't have to worry about that. Now, as I mentioned, some of those racks hold station systems in place, you know, stuff like life support systems and electrical power systems or climate control systems. Uh, And Destiny did not have the full complement of 24 racks when it launched. It had some, but not all of them. Additional space shuttle missions would bring up more racks, which would then get installed into the rack bays in Destiny's lab. Destiny also includes a 20-inch window of incredible clarity. NASA calls it like the the quality of a telescope lens, like that kind of level of clarity. And astronauts mostly use this to conduct Earth science experiments, So if you've ever felt like someone was just kind of watching you, maybe it was a peeper aboard the ISS, except it doesn't like magnify everything. Obviously, I'm being a little facetious. The pictures of it are amazing, but obviously like then you're looking at a a lens through a lens, right? You're looking at a camera image of the glass. I really wish I could see what it looks like to look at the Earth through that glass, you know, in person. I, I imagine it has to be absolutely spectacular. We've got a lot more to say about the ISS, and boy, this this is really a, a huge, huge undertaking. We are going to take another break and come back right after this. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. 
on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids how about instead of timeouts time ins time for you to start paying some bills i'm jb smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast straightforward inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a giggillionaire available wherever you get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit att.com slash hypergig for details Okay, let's get back to it. In July 2001, the United States launched a joint airlock module named Quest. And this module attached to the Unity module. And it gave astronauts uh, on the USOS side of the space station the ability to perform EVAs or spacewalks. Because up to that point, the only airlock aboard the space station was on the Russian side of the ISS. So, uh, you know... Astronauts weren't really going over to the Russian side and vice versa, so they didn't really get to use that airlock. All the other EVAs that were performed on the U.S. side had been part of space shuttle missions rather than, you know, conducted by the crew aboard the ISS because they had no airlock to go through in order to, you know, exit the station and and do an EVA. But Quest changed all that. Then the Russians launched another module in September 2001. This one was the PIRS module, that's P-I-R-S. And the Russians docked it with a port on the Zvezda module, 
uh, frequently referred to as the bottom or nadir point because it was facing the earth, usually. And it served as a docking module. In other words, this was a way for other spacecraft like Soyuz capsules and cargo ships, uncrewed cargo ships, to dock with the ISS. It could also serve as an airlock so that cosmonauts could go on EVAs. So this expanded the station's ability to have, uh, you know, spacecraft dock with it. I should add that one thing that is consistent aboard the ISS is that it always has a couple of Soyuz capsules attached to it to serve as escape capsules. So that should there be a catastrophic failure aboard the space station, uh, cosmonauts and astronauts would have the ability to get into a spacecraft capable of making the return back to Earth. So some of these docking ports end up being in use as these these various uh, capsules stay attached for up to like six months at a time before being swapped around. Now, this module, the Piers module, is one that we can actually refer to in the past tense because while it was part of the ISS for a really long time, I mean, almost 20 years, it is no longer part of the ISS today. Earlier this year, Russia removed Piers from the ISS and maneuvered it for re-entry and deorbited the module on July 26th, 2021. This was so that they could make room for a new module which we will talk about possibly in the next episode, because this one's running longer than I anticipated. But for 20 years, Piers was a big part of the ISS. Then, from the end of 2001 to 2007, the ISS pretty much stayed as I described it, with no other modules joining, although crews would continue to join and leave through various Soyuz and a few spatial missions. Uh, Also, the truss section did get larger with more components. But as I said earlier, I'm not going to cover all those. It would just take way too much time. It's fascinating stuff, by the way. I mean, like it added tons of different functionality to the ISS, but I got to draw the line somewhere. Anyway, part of the reason for that long delay, why nothing happened really as far as modules are concerned between 2001 and 2007 is that the space shuttle program was grounded due to the space shuttle Columbia disaster that happened on February 1st, 2003. Just like NASA put the space shuttle program on pause for more than two years after the Challenger disaster, they did the same thing after Columbia. Shuttle missions would not start again until July of 2005, so it really set back plans of building out the ISS. And only Russian capsules visited the ISS in the meantime, and a skeleton crew of two people served to occupy the station at that point, because there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to to do much else. So this was an era of the ISS where not that much science is getting done. You only got two people aboard there, and they have to handle everything aboard the station, not just the experiments, but, you know, the regular maintenance and operations of the station itself. The next module to join would not launch until October 2007. It was aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery, and this would be the module that would be called Harmony. And this module is very similar to Unity. It's one of the node modules. And uh, like I said, a third one will join the ISS before we're all done with it. So like you know, Unity, Harmony's purpose is partly to provide connecting points between other units in the space station, but it also serves as sleeping quarters for up to four crew members. 
Initially, Harmony docked with one of the berths on Unity so that these two nodes were connected directly to each other, but a few weeks later, Cruz would move Harmony to the other end of Destiny so that Destiny connected to Unity on one end and Harmony on the other end. Harmony also serves as the mounting location for the space station's robotic arm, Canadarm 2. It also has four ISPRs dedicated to crew storage and another four ISPRs for avionics systems. In 2008, the European Space Agency's module, Columbus, joined the ISS. Now, this was originally intended to be part of Space Station Freedom more than a decade earlier, you know, back when that was still a thing. Columbus launched aboard the space shuttle Atlantis on February 7th, 2008. Uh, It is seven meters long, that's 23 feet, and it's four and a half meters in diameter, or 15 feet, and it can hold up to 10 ISPRs for science experiments, and then more for various systems. The ESA technically has 51% operational control of Columbus. NASA has the rest of it. That means that the two agencies actually split these racks between them. So uh, ESA has control of five racks for experiments, and NASA has control of the other five. And that they just share the space. They cohabitate. Like Destiny, the activities on Columbus are geared towards scientific experiments and expanding our knowledge, particularly when it comes to space exploration. Columbus docked with the starboard port of Harmony, on February 11th, 2008. So again, that means if you were in the Harmony module and you're right side up, which is, you know, again, a weak distinction when you're in space and you have the Destiny module behind you, that's to your aft, you're facing forward, that would mean that Columbus would be on your right-hand side. You would need to go through the hatch on the right to get to the Columbus module. Again, all these directions get pretty loosey-goosey when you start to lose reference points like up and down, so your mileage may vary, I guess. Next up, shortly after Columbus, came the Japanese experiment module, or Kibo. Now, Kibo is a really big module. It's so big that it required three separate shuttle missions to bring all the major pieces of the module up to the ISS. Like Columbus, Kibo connected to Harmony on the port side, so that's the left side of Harmony if you've got Destiny behind you and your right side up. And it has 23 ISPRs aboard it, those racks, those enormous experiment racks. Uh, Ten of those are reserved for science. The rest are for Kibo's systems and crew storage. Kibo has its own robotic arm. It also has its own communication system. Uh, It hosts a ton of different science experiments, and that includes stuff like Earth science experiments that monitor the CO2 content of the atmosphere of our planet. It has X-ray astronomy experiments, Uh, electron telescopes, cosmic ray experiments, lots of really super cool stuff. It also hosts various physics and biology experiments, and then there's an exposed facility. This is a a part of the Kibo module that attached to the far end of it. Uh, This is a, a science platform that's exposed to space for those kinds of experiments, you know, the kind where there ain't no air out there. Uh, It's a little tricky to talk about the size of Kibo because of all these different pieces that came together. If we're just looking at the pressurized parts of the module, that is the bits that astronauts can move through without wearing a spacesuit, then you have one part of it that is about 11 meters long or 36 and a half feet long, 
and it has a diameter of about 4.4 meters or a little more than 14 feet. But then there's a second part of it, a module that extends out from Kibo at a 90 degree angle of this uh, tube. So think of this one pressurized tube and then think of like almost like a submarine, you know, has like that, that console at the, the, at one end, you've got this, this part that juts out of one side of the tube, uh, at 90 degrees. This one's 4.2 meters long or 13.8 feet and 4.39 meters or 14.4 feet in diameter. So Kibo isn't a simple cylindrical shape like most of the other modules. It's a little funky looking. Next up, we get the Poisk module, P-O-I-S-K. This was the first of the uh, Russian uh, orbiting system, the ROS portion of the space station, to be added after many, many years. Poisk is similar to the Piers module. In fact, almost identical to it. And Piers, as I will remind you, it docked back with the ISS way back in 2001. So Poisk serves as a docking, you know, docking uh, uh, compartment primarily, just as Piers used to do before, you know, they gave it the boot from the ISS earlier this year. Poisk thus houses an airlock and docking system, and it attached to the Zvezda module on the side opposite the Piers side, or rather, you know, the side where Piers used to be. So it's on the Zenith side. On February 10th, 2010, NASA launched a module called Tranquility aboard the space shuttle Endeavour. Now, this one was commissioned by the ESA and the Italian Space Agency, or ASI. The module's main purpose is to provide life support systems, environmental control systems, and an observation cupola to the space station. Sort of like a, a quality of life module, if you think about it. And Tranquility has six ports, or berthing locations, allowing it to connect to up to six other components on the space station. Uh, it docked with the port side of Unity, and we'll chat about a couple of the other components that have since docked with Tranquility in our next episode. But um, I want to do one more before we, we wrap up here, and that is the RASVET module, R-A-S-S-V-E-T. And if you're thinking that sounds like that's Russian, you're right. It joined the ISS in 2010, and RASVET's main purpose is to serve as a storage container as well as another docking port for spacecraft. This one didn't fly aboard a Russian launch vehicle. It actually went up courtesy of the Space Shuttle Atlantis on May 14th, 2010, and docked with the ISS on May 18th. It connected with the bottom or nadir point of the Zarya module, the original ISS module that started this whole thing, and the other port on Rasvet serves as a docking port for Soyuz spacecraft and cargo spacecraft. This module is 6 meters or about 19.7 feet long and 2.35 meters or 7.7 feet in diameter. All right, we're going to wrap up here and we're going to come back in our next episode to pick up where we left off, talk about the last few modules that have joined the ISS, including the NACA, which is the most recent one. Uh, and we've got another one on the way before the end of the year, if everything goes well. So we'll talk about those. And we'll talk about what life is like aboard the space station, some of the experiments that have been done, some of the, you know, interesting things that have happened aboard the space station during its, you know, time in service, as well as talk a little bit about the plans of what comes next. Like, how much longer does the ISS have before we really need to consider retiring it because various components are pretty old at this point? And what should come after that? 
But we'll do that for the next episode. This one has gone on long enough. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 